This morning we are, are back in Colossians chapter 1 and we are coming to the end of this chapter. This chapter does run all the way in, into uh, chapter 2 verse 5 with the current subject that Paul deals with. But this morning we're going to just focus on that closing verse of chapter 1 as we get through some of the things that are taught by Paul to the Colossian church in this part of his epistle. So let's start reading at verse 24 of Colossians chapter 1. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And we pray God's blessing upon his word to us this morning as we go to him again in prayer. Father, we thank you that we are able to open up your word in this way, publicly, in a way which we can edify each other as you consider the truths that has been contained in your word. We've already reminded ourselves this morning of the inerrancy of your word. We thank you that we have in our hands the only true word. There is no other. For this word is the word of the only God. There is no other. And so this morning as we open your word, Father, we pray that we may not only learn and be admonished, but that we may grow a according to your word, that our hearts are prepared to receive your word and to obey it, and that both speak and hear alike will honor you by doing those things that you require of us. We give you our thanks now as we seek your grace and your mercy and your leading as we speak from your, from your word. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen. In our last sermon, we looked exclusively at verse 24, which says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. And we focus primarily on Paul's ministry in the gospel, with specific attention to Paul's physical suffering for the gospel. We may take some time to explain to you what that suffering looked like, and how that suffering uh, was borne by Paul physically, as he uh, spread the gospel wherever he went in his several missionary journeys. We spoke about Paul's filling up what was lacking in Christ's ministry and tried to explain clearly how this is something we must not misunderstand, as many as some do. And we note that this had nothing to do with adding to the redemptive work of Christ, but rather increased the reach of the gospel started by Christ and confined to the land of Israel, but poured to the gospel further afield 
So in the Thai Mediterranean countries, and preach for a greater period of time. So the ministry that Paul uh, was engaging with the gospel covered a great expanse of land that Jesus did and a greater amount of time than Jesus did. We also saw that the extent of Paul's suffering and expansion of his ministry went hand in hand. As he preached, so he suffered. And although he suffered, and we read that whole litany of things he went through, uh, though he suffered to the point of death in many, time, in many occasions, he continued to preach. That's what he was called to do. And that this work, despite the suffering and hardship, brought him joy. That's how he started. He rejoiced in being able to spread the gospel. Joy, uh, joy was central to Paul's preaching of the word. It was what drove him, and he drew joy from the fact that he could be a servant uh, a vessel, a means in God's hand to bring the gospel to those whom God was calling. We also saw that the focus on doing all of that was for the church, which he says is the body of Christ. And so we went through all of that in verse 24 in the last sermon. This morning, we continue to consider his service to the church as we look at verse 25, which states that he became a minister to the church. Paul refers to his role as a servant or minister twice in the section. A minister of the gospel in verse 23, and here in verse 25, a minister of the church. And the word minister, when we talk about a minister today, we think of a, of a, of a formal uh, office in a, in a denomination where a man is known as a minister. But this word really is just an uh, English translation of a Greek word, which sometimes is translated servant. And other versions, NIV, in our teen other versions in this very place will say that Paul was a, a servant uh, of the gospel and a servant to the church. And by filling the role of a servant, Paul was simply emulating the role of his master. Paul was only simply doing what he told the Corinthians to do. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And Paul did imitate Christ in his servanthood. He, emulate, he was emulating the role of his master who was the perfect servant, Isaiah 42. The suffering servant, Isaiah 53. The condescending servant, Philippians 2. And so as Christ uh, lived a servanthood life, so Paul followed suit. Paul says that this was his, says this of his master's condensation, condescension. For you know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty we might become rich. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 9. And the Lord Jesus Christ says this about himself and his servanthood. He says this in Mark chapter 10 when he's speaking to his disciples who sought to be something other than just servants. He says, and whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man cannot to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Servanthood was familiar to both the Lord Jesus and to Paul. And Paul highlights the significance of Christ's servanthood in Romans chapter 15, where he says this, For I tell you that Christ came, or Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness for two reasons. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. And we need to keep that in mind this morning, because this whole section we're going to speak about this morning Focus on the bringing together of these two in a certain way. 
which uh, we need to understand from this particular passage. And this is in keeping with the theme of this morning's passage. Central to making sense of the text before us this morning is to understand how Jews and Gentiles factor into God's redemption plan. Where God keeps them separate and distinct, we need to keep them separate and distinct. Where God in Christ breaks down the middle wall that separates between Jew and Gentile, we are required to recognize that the the distinctions have been removed. Failing to do that will leave us confused about God's dealing with his Old Testament people and with his New Testament people. And here's how Paul brings this distinction before us. Romans 9, verse 3 to 5. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut it from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Now note, when Paul uses the word brothers, he uses it in different ways. If you go to the beginning of this epistle, he speaks, he calls the, the Colossian believers, my brothers, and he's calling others his brothers, and it's not the same brothers. So Paul distinctly keeps people separate out, and he explains when we need to understand who is speaking to. In Colossians 1 verse 2, he speaks about my brothers in Christ. He is talking to brothers of a different kind. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut from Christ, from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites. And here's, here's how Paul distinctly identifies them. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises distinct attributes that identify this unique people. Verse 5, to them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. This verse is clearly about Israel, but it's also about Christ. And already in this verse, there is an inkling that there is something that transpires through the work of Christ that applies to both Jews and and Gentiles. It is through Christ, who was born to a Jewish mother, who was raised in a Jewish environment, who lived as a Jew amongst Jews, who is the long-promised Messiah and King of Israel, it is through this Christ that the Gentiles will find salvation. Acts chapter 4 verse 12, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. That is not just something that we cling on to as though it's exclusive to the Christian faith only. This applies to everybody in the world. And perhaps you are someone who thinks, well, maybe everybody can kind of get there as long as they have a belief in a faith. There's only one way of salvation. It's this way, by this one, this man. There's no other name except the name of Christ under heaven, given among men, by which we must be saved. Understanding this is crucial to our passage this morning. There was no greater division between any two people groups than between the Jews and the Gentiles. They seemed to be separated by an unbridgeable chasm. And yet the union between the two was incorporated in God's redemptive plan. God always had both Jews and Gentiles in, his, in, in, in view as he set out his plan of redemption. God established the nation of Israel so that ultimately the Messiah would be brought into the world from among them. So clearly, they were critical and essential to God's plan of redemption, of salvation. And it starts right in the beginning. Genesis 3, 1, Genesis 3, 15. 
I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The gospel starts at right in Genesis chapter 3. Sin has just come into the world, and God deals with that. And in part of that judgment, and he speaks to Satan, he says, you will bruise his heel, but he shall crush your head. And so the gospel is already starting to be seen in Genesis as the promised one who will come as the Savior. Isaiah 9 verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah 11 verse 1, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. Zechariah 9 verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, and a foal of a donkey. It was clear from Old Testament prophecy that there was one coming, would be coming out of the nation of Israel, would come as a savior. He'd come as a messiah, he'd come as a king, he'd come as a savior, but he also came as a servant. Jesus Christ was born into the Jewish race for a specific reason, to fulfill a specific purpose. And of this narrow focus of his servanthood, he said in Matthew 15, 24 of himself, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And that confused some people, and that offended some people when Gentiles came to him, we think especially of the Syrophoenician woman who came to him and sought uh, a healing for a daughter. And he could say this to her, he was sent only to the house of Israel. But salvation to Christ would extend beyond just the people of Israel. The promises made to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob by God was clear. From their loins would come a great nation. And the result of that would be that all families of the earth shall be blessed. All families, not just the nation of Israel. Salvation, through one who is coming from the loins of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would not only be a salvation to Israel, but even salvation to all families of the earth. Even as God promised to bring into existence a people of his own, we see that in, promise, in that promise, an extension of his grace is to all families of the earth. God's plan of salvation always included Gentiles who would come from him, would come to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Messiah alone. Just as God's choosing and bringing into existence of his Old Testament people is not left to chance, but it's under the divine orchestration of a sovereign God. Even so, the establishment of his New Testament people is part of the divine plan. It was the same divine plan of salvation. 1 Peter 2 verse 9 tells us this, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own position, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. It was for this very purpose that the Gentiles will be reached with and won by the gospel that Paul was made a servant of God's grace. The gospel of God's grace was not only for the nation of Israel, it was so that Gentiles could be brought in to this family and become part of an inheritance that God had provided for his own. In Acts chapter 9, the Lord declares to Ananias about Paul and about this carrying of the word to the Gentiles. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. And so as we have looked at the, at the role of 
of the nation of Israel in that they would produce a savior, and that savior came in the form of a servant, we see that Paul also now goes out with that same gospel, but this time to the Gentiles as a servant. The Gentiles were not included in the were not, the Gentiles were not included including the divine plan of redemption by accident. They were not there by accident or just by happenstance. God chose from their ranks those whom we will be calling according to his purposes. And the apostle chosen to bring the good news of salvation to them did not come into his ministry by chance or by his own choice. Rather, he was set aside before he was born. He was called by divine grace. And he witnessed the revelation of the risen son himself when he saw Jesus as he was stopped on the Damascus road. In order that he might preach Christ among the Gentiles. That we are told in Galatians chapter 1 verse 5. And Paul, Paul clarifies his role as a servant of God's grace in Ephesians chapter 3, which is a parallel uh, um, account of the way we are this morning. Ephesians 3 verse 7, Paul says this, Of this gospel I was made a minister called the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul is clear about his commission. Paul is clear about why he is used by God. Paul is clear as to who he is going. Paul is clear about his role in disseminating the gospel to those whom God is calling. But Paul was not only a servant of the gospel and a servant to the church, he was also given a stewardship from God for their benefit. Verse 25, he says, of which this church, of which I became a minister, according to the stewardship from God, that was given to me for you. The servant, and we've learned this on many occasions as we've, as we've referenced this in various parts of God's word, the servant is a person who renders services and help to others. It's a lowly role in a home, in a Jewish home, in a Greek home. It's not quite as low as a slave, uh, but it's not very much highly ranked above that. A role in which in some contexts um, it's a low status and it concerns serving people uh, who you consider more important than yourselves. And this is the sense of the word used by Jesus in Mark chapter 10. We already quoted that. Jesus came not to be served, but to be a servant. And Paul is made a servant in the same mold. Paul in every way, in every form, served the church of Jesus Christ at the cost of his life. He came to serve so that his master, who would be magnified and glorified, and that he would not stand ashamed one day, that he had not adequately dispensed his work as a servant. But in that very place where Jesus Christ speaks about him coming not to serve, uh, but uh, uh, not, not to be served, but to be a servant or to serve, he says this to the disciples who are quibbling over who can sit on his right hand and on his left hand in the kingdom. And he says, whoever will be great among you must, must be your servant. And whoever will be first among you must be a slave to all. And so Jesus Christ is very clear as to the role we have amongst each other as he has set the example for us right from the beginning. He chose to be a servant. And the same way Paul follows in his steps and becomes a servant uh, by God's grace, by God's choosing, and by God's uh, uh, hand moving his life, he becomes a servant to the church. And Paul picks up on this attitude of lowly service 
in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 4, where he says this, For what, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, your slaves, for Jesus' sake. Paul was accustomed to seeing himself in the position of serving others for the gospel. He never had any illusions about who he was. And this was a great man. This was a man who sat at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a man who had a brilliant mind. He, may, he was a man who had a, a tremendous career as he was a, 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 a worked for the Roman government in persecuting the church. Paul could have been anybody in his day. Paul could become one of the greatest lawyers in his day, and yet he chose the opposite. He chose to become both a slave for Christ and a servant to the church. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an indictment to us in many ways where we seek the very opposite. We so often seek how much we can get out of life so that we can push ourselves up the ladder of success because we value the uh, accreditation and the accolades of the world, people that we think are important. And yet, Paul did the very opposite. He wasn't concerned about the accolades of fellow Pharisees. He wasn't concerned about the accolades of fellow uh, 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 Jews. He was concerned about serving the church by being a slave for the sake of Christ. We have a lot to learn <clears throat> from the example. But God also gave him a stewardship. And that stewardship was given to him for the Gentiles in particular. Ephesians 3 verse 1, we say this again. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Stewardship is a kind of service that's higher than that of a servant, but it's still being a servant. Stewardship is uh, taken from a, um, a paradigm in uh, Roman and Greek homes where this was a person who was in charge of the household. He was, had an administrative role and was more elevated than just a servant, uh, but he was in charge of the house and he was responsible to the owner of the house uh, that things were kept in order and that the house was run well. He served his master by managing the affairs of the household. He was given greater responsibilities than a servant. He was held more accountable. And Paul brings to the attention of the Colossian church that not only did he serve him by delivering the gospel, he continues to function in his role of a steward to bring the word of God to them more fully. He has done the work of a servant. He's brought in the gospel and they've been saved. And now that they are saved, he's going to manage uh, the, uh, the growth in the Word of God as he honors God, who is his master, by making him more fully acquainted with the Word of God. And Paul took his stewardship seriously. And we see him exercising his role as a steward in at least three ways in the text one this morning. As a steward of God's grace, he was committed to preach the gospel faithfully and without hindrance. As a steward of God's grace, he was committed to bringing the Word of God fully the churches that he ministered to. Paul not only planted churches, and not only was the means of reaching others who planted churches because of the gospel he preached, but Paul went back const constantly, uh, regularly, to just make sure that they fully understood the word of God. So as they were grow, as they, as they came to salvation, and they were young and only could feed on milk, eventually give them stronger meat, and you go back and set things in straight. And he set elders in place, and so he continually was engaged in bringing them to a greater understanding of God's word as he 
uh, dispense the stewardship that was conferred on him by God's grace. And as a steward of God's grace, he was committed to revealing the mystery of Christ, hidden from past generations to men who wrote about the mystery. It was now revealed to the apostles and the prophets. And we see from Acts chapter 9 in Galatians 1 that the stewardship was given to Paul. It's given by grace, by God's grace, to this apostle that he may help others understand those things about God's word that wasn't revealed to them in the former time. In the epistle of the Colossians, Paul outlines specifically what his stewardship entails. He says this at the end of verse 25, to make the word of God fully known, which is the mystery hidden for ages and generations. We come to that point in Colossians uh, at the end of the chapter where it's one of those areas where again we find a word which we are so intrigued by and we want to grapple with it. And often we are too scared to go there because we don't fully understand it. Uh, or we think it's something that is beyond understanding. Um, and so we need to just grapple with this a bit this morning and understand what this word means in Colossians. And I'll tell you why I say it with that qualification. The word mystery is used to denote different things. And it depends on the passage in hand when you read about the mystery. Here are some references where the word mystery appears and is used in different ways and not the way that Paul uses it here. For instance, the Gospels, uh, the Synoptic Gospels, speak about the mysteries of the kingdom of God. In Romans 11, Paul speaks of the mystery of the partial hardening that has come upon Israel. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 14 is, mentions the mysteries of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 15 refers to the mystery associated with the rapture. He says, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep. 2 Thessalonians 2, he speaks of the mystery of lawlessness. Revelation 17 speaks of the mystery, Babylon the Great. So the word mystery, when we see it, doesn't just mean one thing. Its meaning is taken from the context in which we find itself. So to simply ask, what is the mystery? And to expect a single definitive answer is going to leave you disappointed. We must see it and understand it in its context. And in Colossians, Paul says that the mystery is referring to has something to do with the Word of God and fully understanding the Word of God. Truth recorded in the Word of God but not fully revealed to those who were the inspired authors. And this applies to truths written in the Old Testament, where God inspired men to write certain prophecies and certain, certain things, but they did not always fully understand those things that God deemed you would hold back until a time when they could be fulfilled. A certain aspect of what they wrote was withheld from them, so that what they wrote became a mystery, not fully revealed. Much of what they had to say was there, but something was not made known to them, but was made known at another time when there was time for the risk that mystery to be revealed according to God's plan, God's purposes, and God's divine decree. The knowledge that made the mystery understandable, that missing information, had to be provided by God. It wasn't something that people could arrive at logically. It wasn't something people could arrive at as over time they grew wiser or more accustomed to what God was saying. The mystery that God how the God had put in place by withholding certain things from those who wrote it had to be revealed by God's own intervention. And we see this as an example uh, in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 2. In fact, in Daniel chapter 2, the very word mystery is used in the same way, the same word, 
uh, in the LXX, where they translate the word that would be written in an Eastern language. When they translate the Greek, they use the same word, mysterion, mystery. In Daniel chapter 2, the king has a dream, and the king not only doesn't know the meaning of his dream, he doesn't remember his dream. And because he can't remember his dream, he calls people who are considered to be wise men of the, of the nation to come before him and tell him the dream and give him the interpretation thereof. And they can't do that. And the king then says that, well, all the wise men in the kingdom need to be uh, killed. And amongst those wise men is Daniel. And uh, Daniel is approached by Arioch, and he says uh, that he must be one of those who are going to be killed. And Daniel asks what's taking place, and he's told about the dream that is been hidden from the king and uh, the interpretation thereof. And Daniel says, well, let me speak to the king. And as he goes to the chapter 2 of Daniel, we find that Daniel eventually not only reveals the, the dream, but also the meaning. And he makes it extremely clear. He mentions several times in the chapter that the only reason why this dream is being made known, why the mystery is revealed, is because God has given the revelation of the mystery. It was only by God's intervention. It wasn't because he was a great soothsayer or a great dream uh, interpreter. That particular dream given to, given to the king was given to the king as a mystery, and only God could unlock that mystery because God alone was the revealer of mysteries. And so God, even when it comes to the mystery that, we, that Paul speaks about in Colossians, God eventually has to give the revelation of what this mystery is because what is contained, what it, it, what it speaks about, is something that was not understood by the Old Testament prophets, writers, and saints. Paul says that the revelation of this mystery, hidden from the past in, in Colossians, is now revealed to the saints as he makes the word of God fully known to his present audience. And Paul states it like this in Colossians 1.25, The stewardship of God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. What is, or what this mystery in the Colossians uh, verse 27 is, um, we're not really fully told. We're not fully told right there, and we will see very soon what it, what it, what it, what it is. What this mystery in the Colossian context is, is seen in verse 27. It's stated in verse 27. To him, to them, as to the saints in verse 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. This mystery, which is Christ in you. That's the mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery of Colossians is directly linked to the work of God among the Gentiles, and this mystery is defined as Christ in you. And he adds, a qualifier, the hope of glory. And we learn the following from verse 26 and verse 27. The mystery is revealed to the saints now, while it was concealed to the saints in the past, they never knew what it meant. The mystery is about the glorious riches of which the Gentiles are the beneficiaries. The Gentiles are the beneficiaries of what this mystery is. The content of the mystery is Christ in you, the Gentiles. And the realization of this mystery is the future hope of glory. And I say the future hope of glory because that's exactly what this leads to. In Romans chapter 8, verse 22, we read this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grow inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope, for in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. 
Fool hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And then he says this, and we know this verse so well. For we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. For those whom he foreknew, he, foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. And those who be predestined, he also called. That's a done deal. We have been predestined, and we have been called to the Gentiles, and we are saved. Those whom he has predestined, is also called. And those whom he has called, he has also justified. This is a done act in our lives. We have been predestined, we have been called, and we have been justified. And those whom he justified, he has also glorified. Are we glorified right now? And what Paul is doing here in writing Romans is actually using a, uh, a mechanism to state something as though it was already done, already occurred, because of the certainty of it taking place. That's why he can say we are glorified. And why can he say that we are glorified? Because of Christ in us. Because of Christ being in us, our glorification is a guarantee. It's something that will take place as the mystery that has taken place in God's plan, has brought the Gentiles into not only just salvation, but into the full inheritance of what belonged to the Jews. But we still do not know from this what the mystery is. What are the essential elements? The, the church which I grew up in came to, uh, came to salvation in, the church which I served in for a long time, always thought that this mystery was the turning of the Gentiles to Christ. They would say that in the Old Testament... Uh, they didn't see the Gentiles coming. Um, some groups clearly say they didn't see the church, but many said they didn't see the Gentiles coming, as though the Gentiles, uh, when they came to salvation, but was not shown in the Old Testament. To them, the mystery was that the Old Testament Jews could not see the Gentiles as part of God's redemptive plan. That's not correct. As can be seen from scriptures such as Acts 13, verse 47, where Paul and Barnabas quote Isaiah 49, which is Old Testament, where Isaiah says, for so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. The Gentiles were always included in God's plan of salvation. That, that in itself is not the mystery of the Colossians. They were always part of God's plan. So them coming in was not the mystery. To, understand, to come to the understanding of this mystery, we would have to go to, to other epistles for some explanation. And you can go there right now, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5. Romans chapter 9, verse 1 to 5. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have a great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It identifies clearly who he's speaking about. He's speaking about the Israelites. We know exactly what Paul is referring to. He tells us right there in the text. His brothers, according to the flesh, they are Israelites. And he has this to say about them. To them belong the adoption, Exodus 4.22. To them belong the glory, Exodus 40, verse 34. To them belong the covenants, Genesis 17, verse 2. The giving of the law, Deuteronomy 4.14. The worship. Hebrew 9, verse 11, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. 
This is a clear definition of national Israel. They are uniquely different to the Gentiles and possess qualities that are essential for their identity. No other nation on earth, no other nation, past, present, or future, can lay claim to those particular attributes. Those identified Israel as separate from all the nations and it remains with them as God's identity for his people of the Old Testament. Go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, please. Paul now addresses a different group of people, and he makes it clear who he's addressing. Ephesians 2, verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, who is Paul addressing now? He's addressing the Gentiles. And now he keeps this distinction clear. He shows in the next few verses how these two groups are distinctly different. He says, now, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, that's the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Remember we just read about the Jewish nation, how they were identified, how they were defined. Listen to how the Gentiles appear before they are brought into God's redemptive work. Remember that, at, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, not part of the community, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the law. How diametrically opposite can two groups not be? Paul gives us a, a before and after view of the Ephesian Gentile believers. This is what they were, verse 11 to 12. Now this is what you are, he says to them in the following verses. But now in Christ Jesus, you once were far off, having brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments, expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. And so here we find that God's plan of salvation for both Jews and Gentiles comes to fruition in this way in the church, in, the, in, the, in, in, the, in this time of, um, of, 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 of Paul's teaching, in this way, when these two different groups diametrically opposed, distinctive groups are brought into one body through the cross. It says that he might create himself one new man in place of the two by so making peace, and he might reconcile us both, as both Jew and Gentile, to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews, for through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to, in one spirit, to the Father. This is a tremendous truth that we have to understand, that when it comes to salvation, that we uh, see as it is, uh, it is taught by the apostles uh, in the New Testament, this salvation which we experience now, this new covenant salvation, Jew and Gentile is both drawn into God's salvation, and they lose their distinctiveness as Jew and Gentile, and they become one in Christ. We become Christians. We become part of God's family. No longer Jew, no longer Gentile, no longer male, no longer female, no longer slave, no longer free. We are one in Christ. Our distinctiveness that defined, in, defined, us, in our, defined us in our old life is replaced by a new distinctive. We are in one in spirit. We are one in Christ. And Christ is in us. We've already said that the salvation of the Gentiles has been part of God's eternal plan of salvation. Nothing new as far as the Old Testament goes. But here is the part that was not known to the Old Testament writers and prophets. Verse 19. So then, 
You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And when we quote this part, the, the, apostles, and the, and the, the apostles and the prophets were not the foundation that we were built on. There's only one foundation, that is Christ. But what they taught, the teachings about Christ, and the teachings about this foundation stone, that is what what was being used to build up the church of Jesus Christ. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So that is a part that was not understood by those to whom the mystery was not revealed. They could understand how the Gentiles were going to be saved. They could not understand how the Gentiles could be incorporated into the, into the commonwealth of Israel and become uh, fellow citizens and fellow heirs as one with them. They could not understand how God could take a people who were not a people and make him a people like they were his people. We have to turn to Ephesians chapter 3 to glean some more understanding of what the mystery is. This is a parallel passage to Colossians that we read in and we can see several similarities between Ephesians 3 and Colossians 1. Go to Ephesians 3. Paul says this, continuing in the teaching of his stewardship, uh, grace given to him, and how he used that to disseminate an understanding about the mystery that was made known to him. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, and on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. So Paul has already written to them about this. And he says in verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles, here's the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. This is what was revealed only once Jesus Christ had died, had risen from the dead, instituted the new, uh, uh, the new covenant, and brought in the new commandment. And now this is revealed to Paul and to the apostles, and they can make it clear to them that not only are you saved according to God's eternal promises, but you're brought into the same body, made fellow heirs and partakers of the promise in Christ. It will help to understand this if you think, think quickly about the temple layout and why being brought into the same inheritance, the same body, the same uh, partaker uh, as, as Jews, why they find that strange that Gentiles would get that amount, that amount of blessing from God. There were clearly defined areas in the temple precinct that separated out worshippers based on certain criteria. So when it came to the temple worship, which was an elaboration, extension of the tabernacle worship, uh, people couldn't just go where they chose to go. There were separate places for people depending on their uh, qualifications. And to do this, certain courts were established. There was the outer court and the inner court, the women's court. And these courts were there for a reason. Jews were totally happy to have Gentiles join in with their worship of the same God. There were many Gentiles 
who were recognized as God worshippers. The many Gentiles who saw that this nation was, they were blessed by a God who was phenomenally different to every other God they knew, and they worshipped God. And whether it was in the tabernacle, and whether it was in the temple, there were Gentiles who came to worship God at the temple. One of the most famous ones in the New Testament is a eunuch who came all the way to worship in the temple. And so when they came to worship in the temple, they couldn't just stand wherever they were. Jews were happy to have Gentiles worship with them in the temple, but only if they remained separated from them. So they were both enjoying exactly the same worship, worshiping the same God in the same, in the same area, generally speaking, going through the same processes, yet they were different because Gentiles are not, Jew, are not Jews. And Jews have a special privilege, male Jews have a special privilege in worshiping the temple. The Gentile worshipers were still considered aliens, and they, they had to worship in the outer court. They had to worship in the court that was qualified, where they were qualified to worship, while the Jews worship in the inner court where they were qualified to worship. Gentile worshipers were considered aliens and outside of the commonwealth of Israel. They were not Israelites. No matter how much they were proselytized, they were still seen as not Jews by birth. And therefore, while part of the same worship group was not fully in, incorporated into the commonwealth of Israel. So then think how Ephesians 2.19 must have sounded to Jews who had this old economy in mind. Imagine Jews who only knew about the temple worship, had no knowledge of the revealed mystery, and when they saw how the God was working with the Gentiles, imagine how they thought, what they thought when they read verse 19. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the house of God. And this is why the understanding of the mystery had to come by revelation. Nothing like this, the making of two into one man had ever been conceived by the Jewish writers. Hence Paul says in Ephesians 3 verse 3, how the mystery was made known to him by revelation, as is written. And when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ. This is a tremendous truth. And in this particular case, this is what the mystery means. It doesn't mean the same thing we used elsewhere. We have to go to the context of those passages, what it means there. But here, this mystery is no longer a mystery to us. It's a mystery that has been revealed. It has been explained by the Apostle Paul. It's been uh, taught throughout the church uh, um, life. And we know that this is exactly what the mystery is. And so Paul continues in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. He speaks about in Him, Christ in you. That's the one who we proclaim. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present Christ, where we may present everyone mature in Christ. As Paul gets to the end of this chapter, or as we see Paul getting to the end of a chapter which we've put in place, we see he draws him all together with this understanding that with this, with this repeat, repetitive use of a word, everyone, an inclusive word. A word which brings all into a single category. A, a word which, which, which brings all under the same uh, qualifications, the same definition. This is one group of people. And it's this people that Paul proclaims Christ to, warning them and teaching them with all wisdom that, they, that he may present everyone mature in Christ. The purpose that Paul has as he unfolds this mystery to them, uh, not so much in this epistle, but in the accompanying epistle to the Ephesians, which no doubt they would have read, read because these, Ephesians, these, these epistles came at the same time, 
uh, from Paul in prison, and so it will be passed amongst the churches. And so they would also have read about, in Ephesians, uh, this very truth, that he was there to present them mature in Christ. Paul's desire as a steward was that the saints would not just be saved, but that they would realize the wealth of their salvation, the expense of the new life they have, the depth of what God has brought them into, that he's made them one with the Jewish uh, saints. So whether they're Jewish saints or Gentile saints, they were one in Christ, all sharing in, a, in the same inheritance, all worshipping the same Savior in whom the same Christ was dwelling, in every one of them equally, so that each one of them could claim to be a child of God. Everyone signifies a unified whole, and the unity was won by Christ. And the unity that was won by Christ must be maintained by Christ. Galatians 3 verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our God until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. That's the only way to be justified. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as of you were, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, and now Christ is in us. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's no male or female, and don't please let this verse be thrown at you to tell you why transgenderism is valid. Please, fight it tooth and nail to the core. It does not mean that, it cannot mean that. Neither male nor female, for you're all one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ's, then your Abram's offspring is according to the promise. The promise that God will bring us into His kingdom, into His family, into the blessings reserved for His saints, has been inculcated in His plan for the redemption of all families. In, Adam's, in Abram, and through Abram, and Isaac, and Jacob, the promise was that through their loins, all families of the world of the earth will be blessed. Colossians 1, 29 in closing. And for this he says, I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The toiling and struggling were essential components of Paul's stewardship. His stewardship was something which was um, carried out, uh, expedited under great duress. Paul did not sign up for an easy ride. Paul did not sign up for a cushy job. Paul did not say gain with no pain. Paul's gain was seeing the maturity of the saints uh, growing in Christ and that he could present them one day as an offering. He would not have to stand ashamed before Christ because he had seen them grow. And that gain for Paul came with tremendous pain. We read about that pain of his suffering which he did as he filled up that which was lacking in Christ. Paul knew the consequences. He had been the driver behind the persecution of those who stood for the gospel. Paul knew exactly what he was signing up for. Because it was a time when Paul persecuted people like himself. It was a time when Paul was the one who put to death people who stood for things that he now stood for. He was the one who stood at the feet of a man who was being stoned to death for presenting the same Jesus that he was now presenting to the entire world. Paul knew the consequences. Uh, and despite that, he stood up for the gospel. He knew this would be with toil and with struggle and was endurable only for one reason. It was endurable because of his energy, that's the energy of Christ, that he, that he powerfully works within us.
And so as you get to the end of chapter 1, it's been a, a chapter of huge heights. Uh, we've never scaled any of them fully. It's been a chapter that we've seen our poor has gone to tremendous depths to make those truths known to us. As we get to the end of the chapter, we should be challenged. As we think of Paul's stewardship, how much does that impact our lives? Because not only is Paul called to be stewards, but elders and pastors are also called to be stewards in Titus chapter 1 verse 7. So as stewards, we need to also be ensuring that we are dispensing our stewardship to the church, which has been committed to our care, so that Christ may be edified, that Christ may be magnified, and you and I may be edified. We are called to be stewards as overseers in, in Titus 1 7. But not only that, in 1 Peter 4, 7, we are all called to be stewards as we serve each other. Each one of us is responsible for the well-being of our brother and our sister. That's why we have a body like this. That's why we have a membership. That's why we have a collective of this nature where we not only know about each other, but where we care for each other, we edify each other, we serve each other. And in serving each other, it's an act of worship to the one whom we serve, who is God, our Lord, our Master, and our Savior, who is Christ in us, the hope of glory. <clears throat> Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we have so many great examples left for us in your word of how we should walk a life. And we pray you may help us to apply our hearts to your word, that we may be open to your leading, to illumination of the Holy Spirit, and to you moving in our hearts so that as we learn more about your word, we may live accordingly. That our actions and our walk and our words may reflect Christ who is in us. The one in whom we hope, the one we will be with him, not only in glory, but glorified like him. We thank you for your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name and for his sake alone. Amen.